All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Ruth. We're going to start in chapter 2 tonight. Uh, so we just kind of started our story off, and we're kind of making our way through the text, um, looking at God's providence in the life of Ruth and her relatives and those in her life. And um, This week, we're going to be talking about God and my luck. What's it look like when God shows up in the midst of, of luck and chance, so to speak, in our lives? And speaking of luck, I'm sure you guys saw a couple weeks ago um, in the news, as, as I think everyone did, uh, that the Powerball hit a pretty uh, high number, right? Like I think it's one of the highest jackpots they've ever had at $1.5 billion. Um, and so people were going crazy over this, right? The people were buying tickets and tickets and tickets and all over the place and um, and it just kept going up and up and up and up. And I think when it finally got to the, to the top, I, I looked it up and said there was a, the odds of winning the Powerball at the end was one in 292 million people. Just to give you a little perspective, the entire population of the United States is somewhere around 318 million people. And if you take out all the ones that are kids and can't actually buy a ticket because they're not of legal age, you actually had more tickets out there than people who could buy tickets in the United States. That was your odds in winning the, the Powerball that week. So, uh, but nonetheless, there were some winners, some small winners, but then there was one larger, cup, larger winner that was a couple in Tennessee, um, John and Lisa Robinson, and they didn't win the whole thing, but they won $528.8 million uh, in their Powerball winnings. Not, not too shabby take home, right? Um, and so um, some would look at that and they would be like, man, they are so lucky, right? Like that's the word we use. Like they're so lucky. I, I can't believe they won. That, that's, that's crazy. You know, those odds are just, you know, out of this world. And yet history would show, if we went back and actually, if you look, I don't know if you ever noticed this, if you've ever done the research, if you look at a, a, a history of all the lottery winners throughout time in the United States or throughout the last, I guess, last couple decades, the majority of them actually end up burning through all that money in a very short amount of time and actually end up going back and living in poverty or sometimes even below what they were at before they won um, as a result. And so uh, maybe it's not so lucky. Maybe it's a little unlucky. I don't know. But um, we shouldn't be surprised because Proverbs thirteen eleven says, Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little by little will increase it. And in fact, you know, it's interesting because the Bible actually warns us against get-rich-quick schemes in general. Not just the lottery, but any, any kind of business situation, any kind of business venture where you're looking to make a ton of money with very little work and very little input and very little effort. Um, the Bible says this in Proverbs 28, 20. It says, a faithful man will abound with blessing, but whoever hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Right? And so we have to be careful with this kind of stuff, and, but... Here's the thing. Some people would say this. Their response would be, okay, fine, but what's wrong with it? What's wrong with playing? You're like, what's wrong with getting, with, you know, getting lucky and benefiting as a result of that luck and so on and so forth? In the world's view, there's nothing wrong with it. But when we start looking at the biblical view of luck and what that means, here's what we find is that God says there is no such thing as luck. Right? Proverbs 16.33, a lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even the things that look like luck to us, even the things that seem like happenstance and chance, they're actually not at all. They're actually all ordained underneath the providence of a holy God. And we're going to see that here in Ruth tonight. And so we should never be trusting in luck. We should be trusting in our God and his providence and his sovereign hand in our lives. And so tonight, here's the key idea I want you to walk away with. Luck is when I misunderstand God's invisible hand. 
That's the first thing in your notes there. Luck is actually when I just misunderstand the invisible hand of God working in my life and in the world around me. That's what I think luck is. Okay, That's what it looks like from our perspective, our vantage point. And so we're going to see tonight in the book of Ruth, what does it look like to trust in the God of providence rather than trusting in this thing called luck? Okay, And so if you're with me, go to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to do things a little bit different tonight. Okay, So I'm actually going to walk through the entire narrative um, here in chapter 2, or the section we're going to cover. I'm just going to make some observations and point out a few things along the way. And then we're going to circle back, and I'll give you some observations and some applications out of this text. You with me on that? Does that make sense? Okay, so let's just kind of walk through the narrative, and you've got to make some notes as we go along, as you like. So Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 starts off. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. All right, so last week... We, start, we, we got kind of to the point where Naomi and Ruth had made their way back to Bethlehem. They finally made it back to Bethlehem, and, and it said they got back right at the beginning of harvest season. All right? that's, a, that's a cue for us. It's a key that's going to happen in the story here. But then verse 1, chapter 2, completely goes like over on the side stage left and says, hey, we got a new guy, new character, Boaz. Right? Like the name just sounds like super cool and manly, right? Boaz, right? Like, and it says, so Boaz steps on the scene, and a couple things we know. First of all, his name actually means, in him is strength, right? So his name already means, like, super strong guy. Like, he's just, like, a cool dude, right? And he's a, he's a relative of Elimelech, her dead husband, Naomi's dead husband, right? So there's a connection there, a family connection. But most important thing we learn out of this verse is that he's a worthy man, okay? What's that word worthy mean? Well, it's used a couple different ways throughout the Old Testament. In Boaz's case, it actually means all of the meanings kind of in one, okay? So sometimes when they call somebody a worthy man in the Old Testament, it's talking about their wealth. It's talking about that they, they have a lot of resources. They have a lot of, of money. They have, they, have, they have wealth built up. In this case, we're going to find out here in a second that Boaz is actually a pretty wealthy guy in Bethlehem. He's a business owner. He's got several fields. He, he's done pretty well for himself, Okay? Another way that they use the word worthy in the Old Testament, and this word here, is to mean a man of war. Okay, a man who has, has proven himself in battle. Someone who's strong and can, and can protect, and someone who can defend, and someone who is, who's able to stand their ground. Are you with me? And we're going to see that in Boaz as well, as the story progresses. The third way that Boaz is worthy is that he's a man of wherewithal. Meaning, he gets stuff done. Right? Like, you know, like when you really have to get something done, like this is like an important task, like, this cannot fail. You go and you find the one person that you're like, you know they're going to get it done. Right? Like no matter what happens, no matter what obstacles, no matter what comes against them, they get stuff done. Right? That's Boaz. Right? So he's a man of wealth. He's a man of war. He's a man of wherewithal. He's like, the, he's like a dude's dude. Right? Like he is like the man. Everybody wants to be Boaz. Like I, I kind of think of like Gaston, like in Beauty and the Beast, only like not a jerk. Okay? And so like like he is the dude, right? So so this is Boaz. They introduce him to us, but we're gonna find out pretty soon, and this is kind of strange. Um, he's still single. Ladies, that's a little weird, right? Like a guy like this. Doesn't usually last very long, but he's an older guy. He's still kind of, I don't know if he has like a horn or something. I don't know what's going on, but he's still, he's still single, which is going to play to Ruth's favor here shortly, okay? And in this story, Boaz is the human hero, All right, We already said God is the, is the overall hero, but Boaz is the human hero. He's actually the Christ figure in the story. So much so that Charles Spurgeon, famous pastor and theologian, 
he once described Jesus Christ as our glorious Boaz. Like, you know you're pretty much a stud when your name gets used to describe Christ. Or like when your name is the analogy for who Christ is. Like, so Boaz, Boaz is a good guy, all right? We're going to see that here as this transpires. Go to verse 2. It says, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come, she just happened to come, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. All right? So the second thing I want you to hear is, is Ruth. All right? Ruth steps back into stage center, right? And we see two major things in here for Ruth at the beginning of the story, this, this part of the story, is her initiative and her faith. Okay? So she says to Naomi, let me go and glean. All right? Let's talk about gleaning for a second. Gleaning was basically like the Old Testament Hebrew welfare system. All right? It's the, what God had set up to care for those who were poor and destitute and didn't have anything. And what he told the Israelites was he said, when you, when you go out and you harvest your grain, remember it's harvest season, right? They got back in harvest season. When you go out and you harvest your grain, if, as you're cutting the grain and you're bundling it up, whatever falls on the ground, just leave it there. And we're going to let those who don't have anything come behind you and pick up the leftovers and they can take that home and that's how they can feed them and their family and so on, okay? He also said on top of that, don't even, don't even bother harvesting like the corners of the field, like leave the edges unharvested and let them come and take from that as well, okay? So God set up the system to care for those who were poor and in need, all right? And, and the reason he could do that is because he's God. And the Israelites understood something that oftentimes we forget that God owns it all. They weren't the Israelites' fields. These were God's fields. He said, I'm giving them to you to bless you, and so I want you to use them to bless others by functioning in this way, right? And what was great about this, and sometimes the welfare system in our country gets a bad rap, and the reason it does that is because it doesn't follow the same principles that God sets up here. Yes, he provides for the poor, but he does it in a way that gives them dignity, they get to come, they get to participate, they get to, to, to work and pick up. It's not just here, take this. That's why so many people in our country are, are sour on the way we do things when it comes to serving the poor. But God has a system here that really works well. And Naomi and Ruth need that system because right now they are at the bottom of the barrel. No husbands, no sons, no brothers, nobody to care for them, nothing. And so Ruth says, hey, let me go glean, right? And the fact that Ruth and Naomi are poor gives me a chance to talk here for just a second about poverty and the way the Bible views poverty, okay? In the Bible, this is something that's important for us as Christians in America. We need to understand this because our world does not, and everything gets lumped into one bucket. But in the Bible, there's actually two types of poor, okay? There's the righteous poor and the unrighteous poor. The righteous poor are those who are widows and orphans the sick, the elderly, those who are poor, who are in poverty, not because of anything they've done, not because of any choice they've made, but because of just their life circumstances have dealt them a hand where they just can't seem to make ends meet. Are you with me on that? All right. The second category of poor that the Bible talks about is the unrighteous poor. These are those who are poor because of the decisions that they have made. They're lazy. All right. They won't go work, and so they don't have anything or the drunkard, or, or those who are addicted to something that is taking all their money instead of spending their money on what they need, 
or maybe even those who are materialistic and greedy and want to go out and buy all the stuff and then they put themselves in debt and they can't make bills make at the end of the month. Okay? We, I would call this the unrighteous poor. And the way the Bible deals with poverty is it says this, we should always care for, take care of, uh, uh, be there for, provide for those that are in the righteous poor category. Over and over again, the Bible says, care for the orphan, care for the widow. Absolutely. What we're not commanded to do is do the same thing in the unrighteous category. Should we teach them? Should we help them to correct and to get back? Yes, absolutely. But it's not the same care that we're giving to the other. Is that making sense? Right? And so the system built here by God is to care for those who are truly in need and can't do anything about it. And so Ruth and Naomi step into that system, and Ruth says, let me go. But see, for Ruth, this was actually a very dangerous move for her. Think about Ruth, right? She's a young, as far as we can tell, pretty lady, single, but she's a foreigner. She's a Moabitess. In a foreign country, she doesn't know these people. She doesn't know this land. She doesn't, there's no protection for her. When she steps out into those fields, nobody's there to protect her. Nobody cares about her. But she goes anyways. Why? Because the danger meets her faith in an all-present God. She believes in a God that's going to protect her and provide for her and care for her, and she's stepping out in faith, knowing that if she doesn't, her and Naomi have nothing. So she goes to glean. And then the author here in verse 3 says, she went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come along the field belonging to Boaz. The author is going to use this kind of language throughout the book. She just happened to show up there. This just happened to happen. It happened to be luck or chance or happenstance. And it's not because the author really thinks that. The author's using ironic language here. He's using irony to show us that none of this is by happenstance. None of this is by chance. That it's actually God's hand at work here. It's God's providence at work. And we're going to see that unfold in the story. And we talked a couple, I think it was two weeks ago now, about God's providence a little bit. And I told you that God works in the world in, with two hands, okay? One hand of God's providence is his divine hand of miracles, where sometimes God chooses to just reach down into history and do something miraculous where everybody looks at them and be like, man, that had to be God. Like, there's no other way that happened right there. And it's obvious that God showed up, okay? But there's a second hand of providence that God uses, Sometimes this is a little less obvious and I think more frequent. And that's where God uses his invisible hand of providence to come in and just kind of do things behind the scenes, work circumstances out to work the plan that he has created to usher us along the path that he has for us. Now to understand how that works is hard for us because in our finite minds, in our beings, we're looking at our lives saying, well, okay, I hear that, but it seems like to me I, I have some ability to choose. Right? There's a level of free will and choice. I'm making choices, and those choices have consequences, and that affects my future, and that affects what happens at work and with my family, and, right? Here's, here's the best analogy I've ever heard to explain this. I heard another pastor explain it this way. I'm going to share it with you. Think about God's providence as a loom. You know what a loom is? A loom is like that, that machine they used to use to, and sometimes still do to, to like weave clothing and fabrics together. You know what I'm talking about? So with a loom, there's two points of view. There's the view from underneath the loom. There's the view from on top of the loom. Are you with me? Okay. So for us, we're looking at the loom from the bottom. We're looking up at the loom. And go back one for me. 
this is, this is like, all right, so we just see all these strings and knots and random stuff. Like we don't really, you can't really make out what's, being, what's going on here. You can't make out the picture. You can't make out what's actually being made on the loom, right? You just see all this kind of random stuff. That's our viewpoint of God's plan and God's providence. Our, our free will, our choices look like to us just a bunch of happenstance and random stuff together. But God's up on top of the loom and he's looking down and he sees that he's actually weaving a beautiful tapestry, right? And what seems like happenstance and chance and just randomness to us is actually him putting together a very orderly and perfect and sovereign plan for our lives. Does that make sense? And we see that coming together here in the book of Ruth, okay? So with that in mind, let's go to verse four. It says, and behold, Boaz came, we, we need to use that word more, by the way, right? Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Asking about Ruth. And the servant said, who was in charge of the reapers, answered, she, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather from among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. All right, so next scene, Boaz comes pulling up, right? And, and the first thing I want you to see here again, the author's using that word, behold, like, like it's a surprise. Behold, Boaz showed up. Is it a surprise? Not to God, it's not. Again, God is lining things up. He's going, Boaz is just going to happen to come to the field where Ruth is, is gleaning at. Out of all the fields he owns and all the businesses and all the property, he happens to come to this field on this day, and guess who's there? Right? So Boaz comes rolling up in his Bentley with the, with the, you know, the, 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 the tinted windows and the nice rims because he's, you know, he's, he's got some wealth to him. So he comes rolling up, and he steps out, and the first thing he says to his employees is, the Lord bless you, right? And they respond, and the Lord bless you. How many of you are getting that from your boss Monday morning? I'm just curious. Like, how many of your bosses are walking in like that, right? What does this tell us about Boaz? He's a godly boss. He's running his business in a way that honors the Lord, right? And this isn't like a first time. He's not just showing off because the people respond right back to him. This is a normal thing. Like, this is the relationship he has with his employees, He's a godly man. He's a worthy man, right? This is not your typical work environment, right? He gives them a priestly blessing as he walks in. And then he, he, he notices, oh, well, hold on. I don't know her, right? He's so intimately acquainted with his employees that he knows them all by name, and he knows he doesn't recognize this one. Out of all of his fields, out of all of his business, like he knows who he has hired. And so he asks his foreman. He has the foreman there on the job site, right? And he's overseeing everybody. He's like, hey, Who's this lady over here? And, and notice what the foreman responds. He responds by commending Ruth in both her character and in her work ethic. She came, she humbly asked, and she's worked all day with just a little short break. She's been working her tail off. She's, she's legit. That's what the foreman's saying. All right? And so Boaz is inquiring as a godly boss, and now he's going to go a step further and show us he's not just a godly boss, he's a godly man in general. Because what we find out is he already knows about Ruth. 
He didn't know this, who, that he didn't, hadn't seen her yet. He didn't know what she looked like, but he had heard the story. He knew what happened with Ruth and with Naomi and how she came back with her mother-in-law and how she's helping her mother-in-law and serving her mother-in-law. And, and he takes notice of Ruth. But he doesn't take notice like on the worldly cultural list side, right? He notices her character, the beauty of her character. I like, think about it. Ruth went out to the field knowing she's going to glean, right? So she's probably not wearing the nicest clothes. Are you with me on that? Like when you go out to do yard work, what are you wearing, right? Like the old jeans with the holes in them and stuff, right? And so she's, she's, and she's been working all day. So she's sweaty and dirty and, and probably a little funky, right? Like, okay. And, and she's, she's not, She's not from good Hebrew stock, right? Like she's a foreigner. She's not a virgin anymore. She doesn't have any good family ties. You know, she's, she's poor. She has this like bitter old mother-in-law over here that like nobody wants to deal with her, right? Like guys, like she's not top choice at this point for most men in the world. Are you with me? But Boaz doesn't look at that. He looks at her character. Who is she? What is she doing? How is she, how is she handling herself? How is she caring for others? Boaz teaches us something very important here about relationships. I'm going to give you a couple different things today on relationships. You might just want to make a relationships category there on your notes. Here's the first thing Boaz teaches us about relationships. I know many of you in this room, are, some of you are single, some of you are single again. You're thinking about dating or you are dating. All right? Or maybe you've got kids who are in that boat or grandkids. So this is all good stuff you can apply to any of those situations. Okay. Here's the first thing we learn about relationships from Boaz. Boaz isn't just looking for a good time. He's looking for a good legacy. So many times when we go out and we're looking to date, and we're looking to start relationships, we're looking for a good time. Who am I going to have fun with? Who's, who's going to make me feel good? Who's going to look good on my arm? Who's going to maybe do what I want to do? Right? We're looking for a good time, and that doesn't usually last very long. Boaz has the long-range view in place. He's looking for a good legacy. Who's going to be with me in the long run? Who's going to bring, uh, who's going to make me a better follower of Christ? Who's going to help me to create a family that's going to honor the Lord, right? He's looking down the road. When you start to engage in, when you start looking for relationships in your life, whether it be a dating relationship, whether it be looking for a spouse, future mate, whether it be looking for just a friendship, like, don't just think good time, think good legacy. Like, where is this going, right? Second thing Boaz teaches us is this. There is no perfect mate. <laughs> just look in front of you. All right? Just look in front of you. So many times as Christians, I've seen it over and over again, the single Christian gets this huge long list of stuff that their, their potential mate has to be. All right? And if they're not, then they automatically get ruled off. And the problem is that list, if you really look at it closely, is actually, it's Christ. And you're not going to find him, all right? He's not here anymore. Um, you're not going to, like, there's no, like, we're all sinners. We're all looking to, to form relationships and honor the Lord, but none of us are perfect, right? So let's, let's I'm not saying don't have, a, don't have a standard. Standards are good. Certain things are important. We need to have those things in place. But there's no perfect mate out there. And sometimes we need to stop looking all around for this perfect person and just look at who God has put in front of us. Who's God brought into our path? Maybe that's the person he has for us. And Boaz here, his eyes are open, and he just happens to see Ruth in his field, gleaning. Oh, look at here. Right? All right, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, 
Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. All right, so now we go to another level with Boaz. He's not just a godly boss. He's not just a godly man. Now we see Boaz's love in action, right? He starts off by calling Ruth daughter, right? Same term that Naomi used for her earlier, right? Now, he doesn't have that relationship that Naomi has, but he's showing that he wants to care for her. He has care. He has compassion towards her, like a daughter, like a sister, like a loved one, right? This is how Paul tells us to interact with each other. In 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, it says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Treat one another as family, he says, right? The other thing we know about him using this term daughter, he's probably a little bit older than she is. Like maybe even like more like Naomi's age, okay? He's probably got some years on Ruth. And he notices, she doesn't have a husband, she doesn't have a father, she doesn't have a brother. And a lot of men would see that scenario and their goal would be to swoop in and take advantage of that. But not Boaz. Boaz comes alongside her and calls her daughter to care for her in the absence of her father. Right? He goes far beyond the law. We talked about the law earlier. The law was, let him pick up the scraps, leave the edges of the field. Boaz says, no, no, no. We're going to go way past that. He goes past the law to extend grace to her. Just like Jesus went past the law to extend grace to us. And he actually ends up answering her prayer in the beginning, which was, let me find a field in someone's eyes who I'll find favor. Right? And Boaz is giving her favor. And then look at his instructions here. So he says, first of all, he's like, stay here. Don't go to any other fields. See, sometimes these people, they would jump around from field to field trying to get more food and thinking that, trying to look, what field's going to give me the best return? Who's, who's the sloppiest harvester so I can pick up the most stuff, right? And Buzz is like, no, no, don't, don't go to other fields. Stay here. I'll keep you safe. I'll make sure you have what you need. I'll provide for you. You'll be safe here. Stay here. And then he says, stay with my women workers. Go with my women, he says, my young women. In other words, I'm going to give you community. I'm going to put people around you that, that will help you, that will befriend you, that will be close to you. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you someone in your life who can help care for you. That's all of us. We need community. That's part of what the church is. It's community of people who come around one another to love and serve and help one another. And Boaz is giving that to her here, even though she's a foreigner. And he says, watch and listen. He's like, watch and listen. Look at my young women. Learn from them. Help them. Help, they'll help you understand how to do this better, how to get more, how to gain more. And then I love this part. He says, have I not charged my young men not to touch you? All right. First sexual harassment policy in the history of the world. Right here. Like Boaz is like, boys, you see her? Off limits. Do not touch her. I have a big field. No one will ever find your body. Capiche? All right? Like, we're done with this. Like, do not take advantage of this woman just because she's a foreign, just because she's single, hands off, right? So Boaz, he tells her, I've laid down the law. The guys aren't going to mess with you. Like, this is a safe place for you. And then he offers her even a step beyond that, right? And he says, you can go and take drinks from the water vessels that the men have drawn, okay? Gleaners did not get to do that. That water was drawn for the workers, 
Not for those who would come and glean. You had to, you had to deal with your own stuff. But he says, no, no, you come. I'm going to give you privilege. I'm going to give you position, right? You come and take drink whenever you need a drink. Boaz is showing his love, his care, his compassion for Ruth. This tells us a third thing about relationships here, guys. This is especially for the men, okay? In our culture, in our day and age, I hate to say this, but feminism has killed chivalry. Okay? Feminism has killed chivalry. What do I mean? Here's what I mean. At Harvest, we are not for chauvinism. Okay? We do not boast of that in any way. We believe man and woman created equal in the image of God. Both have equal worth. Both have equal value. God loves them equally. We're not for chauvinism, but we are for chivalry. Men, you need to be chivalrous. Okay? You need to go and to, to care for and protect and work hard. Here's, here's, what, here's, here's what it is, men. Okay, look at Boaz. He works hard so he can care for others. He loves and shows compare and compa- care and compassion for others. And he protects. He says, look, I've got you. I'm going to protect you. Men, you need to be doing that with your daughters, with your spouses, with just the women around you, the other women in your family, at your workplace, like whatever it takes. Be chivalrous. Show the love of Christ like this. And women, you need to be looking for men who are like this. All right? This is one thing that you can't put on that standards list. It needs to be there. All right? I'll give you two things. All right? This is, this is totally for free. All right, women? Two questions. All right? Two questions you need to ask baseline questions before you even talk about a relationship with anyone. All right? Two J questions. Are you ready? All right. Jesus. Do you love Jesus? The answer is no. Sorry. Walking away. All right, question number one. Question number two, do you have a job? Okay, two J questions, Jesus, job. All right, if those are yes, then we can start talking about a relationship. Until that happens, come back later, all right? Men, same thing, get Jesus, get a job, then date a woman. That's the order, okay? Jesus, job, woman, that's the way it works, okay? So this is, this is what Boaz is, is showing. He's showing us how to be a man of character, a worthy man, a chivalrous man who's caring for those in his stead. All right, verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother in your native land and came and to prepare to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Here's the last couple things I want you to see. First of all, look at Ruth's humility here. When Boaz extends this care and this kindness to her, it says that she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. Now, that's not some, again, that's not a chauvinistic thing. That's not like men are here and women are here, okay? This was a common tradition in the ancient Near Eastern culture. When you wanted to show respect and gratitude to someone, whether it be male, female, didn't matter, you bowed down to the ground. She's showing him that she's, that she's thankful that, and she's respecting him for what he's done for her. That's the humility that she has. She humbly receives his favor and his grace. But then, she does something very important. She asks a question. She says, why? Humbly, she asks, but why? Why are you doing this? 
right? She's circling back to the first relationship issue. Okay, is this a good time thing or a good legacy thing? Are you doing this because you're expecting something from me? Some quid pro quo here, right? Or is this honest? It's a good question. It's a good question. And Boaz responds, and he assures her that, no, his, his motives are pure, that his motives are honest, that he just wants to care for her because of the way she's cared for her mother-in-law. And so he presses in on that. And then Ruth, at the end, calls Boaz Lord. And not Lord like capital L, like God, but Lord is in a sign of respect. Again, she's, it's the heartfelt response when grace and favor come on you. It's to show that person respect and gratitude. And we see that here in Ruth. And then Boaz responds to her question with actually a prayer. Okay? It doesn't quite sound exactly like a prayer, but that's basically what he's doing. Look at it here. It says, he prays for her two things. That God would reward her faithfulness. That God would reward the faithfulness that she has shown to Naomi. And that God would protect her and provide for her. And here's what's great. Throughout the story of Ruth, we're going to find that God actually uses Boaz to answer both of those prayers. Boaz is the one who's going to come and provide for her. Boaz is going to be the one who comes and protects her. God is using him to answer the prayers, just like Christ prayed for God to save us and then gave his life to do the saving. See, there's two parts to prayer. Sometimes prayer is to move the hand of God. There are times where we pray and we're asking God to do something on our behalf, to show up, to help us. And sometimes God does. He moves his hand and he makes that right. He makes that happen. He does what needs to be done. But more often than that, prayer actually moves us. We pray and then God moves us to go and answer that prayer. We should always be ready to try and answer the prayers that we've asked God to answer to be used by him, to be vessels of his, to answer the prayers that he's put on our hearts. Boaz does that here. Okay? All right, so that's kind of the end of the narrative for today. I do want to hit one more theology note that comes up here in the text before we move into some observations. So first of all, what we notice here is you have two characters kind of on the scene. You have Boaz and Ruth, both very godly people, but very different stations in life, right? We already said Boaz is wealthy, he's a landowner, he's got all this business. Ruth is at the bottom of everything, she's got nothing, right? In our world today, there are two theologies that are taught that are kind of on separate ends of the spectrum. One is we will call Robin Hood theology, okay? The other is called prosperity gospel, right? Robin Hood theology says rich is bad, poor is good, God loves the poor, steal from the rich, give to the poor, you know, anyone who's rich is evil and sinful and God only loves poor people, okay? That's Robin Hood theology. Prosperity gospel says the opposite. It says, no, no, no. God wants you to be rich and wealthy and have perfect health and nothing to ever go wrong in your life. And if you're following after him, he's going to give you all these good things and nothing bad will ever happen to you, right? Two completely different messages. Are we agreed? All right? Both of them are biblically wrong. How do I know that? One, look at our story. Boaz is a worthy, righteous man, and he is rich. So obviously that contradicts any Robin Hood theology we just talked about. Ruth also is a worthy, righteous woman seeking after the Lord, loved by the Lord, but she's very, very poor. So obviously prosperity gospel is not playing out for her, 
You with me? So biblically, our theology should be somewhere in the middle. That some people are, have great wealth and some people don't. But what God is looking at is who is coming after me. Jesus himself was both wealthy and poor. Philippians chapter 2 says that he left heaven where he owned everything to come to earth as a humble servant and be poor. The whole time, he was the righteous king of kings. So it's not rich or poor, it's are you following after Christ? Right? And we see that here with both Boaz and Ruth. All right? So, with all that in mind, let's get into the next section, observations and applications. I'm going to give you uh, a couple different things to look at to answer this question. Here's your question that I want you to, to grapple with for yourself, okay? Do you live through the eyes of chance or providence? When you're walking through your daily life, when you're making decisions, when you're, um, you know, doing whatever you're doing throughout the week, are you walking, are you thinking, are you living through the eyes of chance, luck, happenstance, or through providence, that God is in control of your situation and that he's going to provide for you? How do you know this? Let's look at a couple things here from our text. First of all, faith versus idleness. See, chance provides no reason for me to work or trust. All right? If, if it's all chance, if it's all luck, then why would I bother going out and working hard? And why would I bother trusting God? Because it's just going to happen. Whatever's happened is going to have to happen. And it's just going to play out however it plays out. Right? And so chance, believing in chance, actually leads me to idleness. To just sitting around and waiting for it to happen. Okay? Again, if we go back to our Powerball example that we started with, I don't know if you guys saw this, but like a day or two after it all went down, um, there, was, there was a lady who, who launched a Powerball reimbursement GoFundMe page. All right? If you don't know what GoFundMe is, it's a website where you can set up pages and ask people to donate to worthy causes. Okay? And so she uh, set this page asking for $100,000. She was trying to raise hundred k. And here's what the message on the page said. Please help me and my family as we have exhausted all of our funds. We spent all of our money on lottery tickets expecting to win the $1.5 billion. Expecting to win the $1.5 billion. One in 292 million odds. And are now in dire need of cash. With your small donation of at least a dollar, a like, and one share, I'm certain that we will be able to pick ourselves up from the trenches of this loss and spend another fortune trying to hit it big again. <laughs> and before the page was shut down, seven people gave $810 to this cause. Okay? The whole goal was to get more money so we can play the lottery again, so we continue to, con continue to sit and be idle. Because when, I, when my life is built around luck and chance and happenstance, it leads me to idleness. On the other hand, if I have faith in a sovereign God who is in control and who is present in my life, and it's, it leads me to work and to trust, to work in line with his character and with his ways and what he's doing, and to trust that at the end of the day, he's going to take care of me. He's going to lead me in the right direction. He's going to prepare a path for me. Right? Faith is the better course for us. Proverbs 13.4 says it like this. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The Bible warns us against idleness. It encourages us to walk and work in faith in a God who is ever-present with us. Ruth showed us that here, right? We talked about Ruth beginning. She stepped out and went to glean, and she worked, and she had faith 
and a God who was going to do it and get it done. So my question to you would be this. Do you walk in faith or sit in idleness? So help you determine whether you're, you're living a life of chance or providence. Do you sit or do you walk in faith or do you sit in idleness? Second thing would be love versus self-serving. Love versus self-serving. Again, hoping in chance is very self-serving. It's all about what are my actions and my, you know, spending all my time, my attention, and my actions on what, how's this going to serve me? How's it going to better me? How's it going to get me more and make me have a better life, right? Again, that's the reason people play the lottery, right? So they can win all this money and so they don't have to work or they don't have to do this or they can pay off this or whatever. It's about them. And some people are like, well, no, no, no. I'm going you know, to give some way to this charity and that charity and that's great and a lot of people do. But until you give the majority of it away, it's still primarily about you, right? So it's very self-serving. It's a very self-serving cause. When we're looking at luck and chance, it's all about how's it going to benefit me? But believing in a sovereign God leads me to love. Because when I believe that God is going to care for me and love me and, and, and is going to make a way for me, I don't have to worry about all that for myself, I can put my time and my attention on loving and serving others. Right? I can let God's love and care flow through me and, 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 and benefit and serve, love others. John, 1 John 3.17 says it like this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, how can you possibly believe in a sovereign God who loves you and cares for you if you're not showing that love and care to someone else? If it's all self-serving. Okay, it's the opposite. Boaz here is our great example. He showed great love. He showed care. He showed compassion. He showed generosity. He prayed for Ruth. Like, he was all about showing the love of God to others. So the question on this one would be this. Are you primarily focused on yourself, or do you seek to serve others? Are you primarily focused on yourself, or do you seek to serve others? Then the last thing to help us evaluate, are we living a life based on chance or providence, is humility versus pride. Humility versus pride. See, again, chance, believing in chance leads me to pride. It leads me to believing, well, I deserve it. I won fair and square. Like, it was my luck that got this for me, so obviously I deserve it, right? Or I deserve to win just as much as so-and-so over here, right? Or look at me, look at how great I did, right? And this is the language we use in winning, right? Well, you know, look at their life before. They deserve to win that. Really? They deserve to? Or, or, you know, like, I deserve just as much as they do over here. This person over here, they're like, we're all equal, right? It misses the opportunity to show gratitude for a blessing that maybe was just that. You see, believing in a sovereign God leads me not to pride. It leads me to humility, because I see that everything belongs to him and his hands are in all of it and every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. And so anything I receive is not because I earn it, not because I deserve it, because of his great grace in my life. That he is great and I am not. James 1.17 says just that, every good and per every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In the same book, just a couple of chapters later, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
That's the kind of exaltation I want. I don't want to be exalted by myself, by my wife or my kids or my neighbor. Or I'm not saying we don't all enjoy a good attaboy every once in a while. Yeah, that's true. But in the end, who do you really want to be exalting you? I want the Lord to be exalting me. He's the one that matters. It's his that really is going to count in the end. Again, Boaz and Ruth, great examples here. Boaz shows us great humility with his open-handedness, right? He's a wealthy man. He owns all these businesses, all these fields, and he leaves them open-handed to the Lord. God, however you want to use them. You want to bless this lady? You want to bless this person? That's fine. You use whatever you want. And Ruth shows great humility in coming and working and her response to Boaz for his grace and his favor in her life. She humbles herself. So again, question, do you live in prideful expectation or humble gratitude? When you walk through your life and things come into your life, do you take those as an expectation of, yeah, I deserve that. Yeah, I earned that. I worked hard this week. That's all on me. Or you approach those blessings, the favor, the things that come into your life, do you approach them with humble gratitude to the God who provides all good things? It could show whether you're living by chance or by providence. I grew up playing sports, like sports. I know many of you in the room like sports. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to me. Like, it seems like there's always, like, that one or two guys on the team who, like, always, like, rack up the stats, right? Like, there's, like, that one guy who always makes the tackles or always gets the rebounds. And, like, they just seem like – and some people, if you're on the outside and you're looking in, you're like, man, they are so lucky. Like, they do – but if you're inside and you understand the game, you understand that it's not actually luck at all. They have learned how to position themselves – in the right place, so they're the most likely candidate to receive those opportunities. Are you with me? They know how to line up just right. They know how to position themselves just right, so they're the one that's most likely to get the tackle. They're the one most likely to get the rebound or the catch, right? That's like us and God's providence. God's in control. He's the one making the calls. He's the one laying it all out. We have no control over that, but we do have control over how we position ourselves before him to receive that. Through faith, through love, through humility, we put ourselves in the stream of God's perfect plan so we can experience his favor and his blessing in our life. We can't control it, but we can position ourselves for it, okay? And that's what we want. That's what we want to be doing, and so that's why we're asking ourselves these questions, okay? Because luck is when I misunderstand God's invisible hand, If I think it's luck, if I think it's happenstance, if I think I'm just getting lucky, you're missing it. You're missing seeing God work in your life in supernatural ways. But when I walk in faith and love and humility, I can see his hand clearly. That it's the one behind the scenes lining things up for me. So I want to close in prayer now, and I just want to pray to that end that God would open our eyes to his providence, to his sovereignty, to his work in our everyday lives. I'm not talking about like something on the special occasion where something big, I'm talking about like every single day. God present in your life, working for you, uh, leading you. Okay? We need to walk in love and faith and humility so we can see that clearly. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord. I just thank you so much for just our time together tonight, your time in your word. Um, Father, I pray that we're able to glean well, Lord, the the fruit of your word for our lives. Lord, this would not fall 
on deaf ears and deaf hearts. Lord, we would do an honest introspection, Lord, and see the areas where we are not giving you the credit that you are due. Lord, the areas where we are believing that some other thing is responsible for what happens in our lives. Lord, grow us in our hearts of faith and in love and humility, Lord, before you. Lord, let us be men and women of the cross, Lord, that are seeking to line ourselves up with your expectations, with with your, your plan, Lord, with your hand in our lives so that we might experience the fullness of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Lord, be with our church. Help our church, Lord, to align ourselves in humility and in love and in grace before you. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.